Next Sunday, the entire world will stop and celebrate something called Easter. Resurrection Sunday, as we know it. Today we celebrate one week prior to that incredible day as Jesus Christ made his way into Jerusalem for the very last time. I don't know about you, but uh, for years I've been involved all the way back to when I was a young child, just like these children here. And I can remember walking in as a little kid carrying that palm branch, singing songs about Jesus Christ, hearing the beautiful music about Jesus and Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means, right? It means Jesus saves. He saves. But have you ever really pondered what all that means? What does it really mean? We all have a personal understanding of it because I'm saved because of Jesus Christ's death upon the cross. I have this relationship with Jesus Christ and I have a home in heaven. And I have a Lord and Savior that loves me. I have a God that loves me so much that he gave me his son upon that cross. But have you really, really pondered the big picture? As Paul Harvey used to put it, the rest of the story. Have you ever really delved in to understanding what was going on that day when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem? How long had that been planned for? What was he about? Why was he doing that, knowing that he was going to die that week? Have you ever really, really pondered in and dug into God's holy word to understand the big picture? Well, because your pastor wants us to have maybe an Easter like never before, I want to take some time this morning and I want to look at the big picture. What was going on that day? What was this really all about? And why does the pastor want that? Because I want you to fully understand what happened on Resurrection Sunday and why that had been planned from the beginning of time. How was it that Jesus Christ died upon that cross that week in Jerusalem? If you have your Bibles this morning, let's read about the triumphant entry. It's in Luke 19. It, uh, it's, it's shared in all four Gospels. Matthew and Luke probably give the most comprehensive stories about the triumphant entry, but we're going to look at Luke this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke 15, 19, and we're going to start at the 28th verse. As you find your way there this morning, Luke 19, verse 28, stand with me this morning, if you will, out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. Luke 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosening it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those that were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosening the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as they went, many spread their clothes upon the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed are the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him in the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, 
saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make you for, make for your peace, but now they were hidden from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, speak to our hearts this day, Father, that we might truly see a bigger picture, Father, that we might fully understand you in a greater way, Father, than draw closer. Father, I pray right now for each and every one of us, Father, that we would seek that intimacy with you. We'd seek to worship you, Father, with every breath we have. Lord, whether we'd worship you as we look at the creation, Father, we'd worship you in the morning, worship you in the evening. Father, we thank you now once again for your holy son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Obviously, it's a story about the triumphant entry. Everyone in Israel knew that one day the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be crowned in Jerusalem. They knew that. Since the Garden of Eden, all heaven and earth have been waiting for that moment when Jesus Christ would enter into Jerusalem for the very last time. You know, let me tell you specifically, in the very beginning, God knew that Jesus was Christ was going to Jerusalem. Jesus had an appointment in Jerusalem. He had an appointment to be crucified one day for you and I from the very beginning. So let me share this thought. For 4,186 years from the beginning of Adam until Jesus Christ came, God had been telling his people that Jesus Christ is coming, that my son is coming, the Messiah is coming. You know, it's sad, though, that too many of the people there were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They were looking for a man of war. They weren't looking for a God from heaven. They were looking for somebody that was going to overthrow the Roman government. They, weren't going to, they were looking for somebody that was going to overthrow once and for all Satan and sin in the grave. They were looking for a human being, something that a human can do. They weren't looking for what God could do. The Son of Man was making his final entry into Jerusalem, but it wasn't to be respected. It was to be rejected. I want to take a picture of the Bible now, the Old Testament in particular, but I want you to understand this concept. The whole Bible was written to point to Jesus Christ and the cross, Jesus Christ and the cross and his resurrection. The whole Bible points that way. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ and the cross. The New Testament points back to Jesus Christ and the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the fact that God's son came, he died, but he rose on the third grave and he lives in heaven today. The entire Bible written that way. Theologians and Bible scholars for years have talked about the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, they've actually come up with a thought in a term. They call it the scarlet thread of redemption. The scarlet thread of redemption. I'll tell you this. Some 52 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament is used the word scarlet. But more than that, 447 times we read the word blood in the Holy Bible. You know what these scholars and these theologians have done is they've traced the blood to the Old Testament all the way up through John the Baptist pointing to Jesus Christ. You remember the story of Rahab the harlot. Joshua was getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan. And he decided to send a couple spies over there to check out Jericho one more time before they got over there. You know, Joshua was on the opinion that he was going to have to come up with a strategy to take down this walled city. He was ready to do it. His army was ready to do it. He was ready to go into the promised land and take on Jericho. We know the rest of the story. When he got there, God said, hey, I've already given it to you. All you can do is walk around it a few times, and I'm going to bring down the walls. And he did that. 
But Joshua sent these spies into Canaan, into Jericho specifically. The spies got in a little bit of trouble. They were being chased. The authorities found out who they were. All of Jericho understood the Israelites. They realized that the Israelites were getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. They also realized that the first probably strategic battle they're going to have was Jericho. The Israelites were coming in to take over Jericho. So they were concerned and worried on the guard. Well, these spies got in a little bit of trouble, but guess what? They ducked into a house, and who did it happen to belong to? Rahab, a harlot. Rahab talked to him for a minute, and she said, well, I'll, I'll help you. I'm going to hide you. So she did. She hid him as the authorities came and went. She hid him, and then ultimately let him out the window of the back of her house, and they escaped. But before they left, they thanked Rahab. They said, thank you so much for doing that. And they said, listen, the Israelites are coming. She already knew that. She told them, I know you guys are getting ready to do something. But we're coming, and we're going to level this city. But I want you to know this. If you hang a scarlet cord, you can read about this in Joshua 2. If you, read a, if you hang a scarlet cord out your window, when we come into Jericho, we will not hurt anybody in your family that's in this house. We will spare your house. By simply laying out that scarlet cord outside her window, she was delivered from death and destruction by the Israelites. Redemption, salvation, there it is. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. All through the Bible we see God's grace and God pointing us towards Jesus Christ. The scarlet thread of redemption, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. God went out and killed innocent animals to provide skins for their clothing. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of God's righteousness in our life. God was covering Adam and Eve with skins. He covers us with his righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Genesis 22. God told Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain and kill him. Abraham went quite a few miles to find that mountain. At the bottom of the mountain, he left his servants there and said, Isaac, come with me. He told the servants, I'm going up to the top of the hill to worship God. Abraham was willing because of his obedience to God Almighty to go up to the top of that hill and kill his son. Shed his blood for the cause of Christ. Because he loved God that much, he was willing to shed his own son's blood. Right at the last minute when Abraham was getting ready to kill Isaac, God says, wait a minute, don't do that. God provided a ram in the thicket. The scarlet thread of redemption, Abraham killed that innocent animal, that ram. But he spared his son. Another picture of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 22, we see God delivered his people out of Egypt. You know the story about all the plagues. What was the final plague? The plague was that I'm going to kill all the firstborn of the, Egypt, uh, the Egyptians. How do you tell the Israelites to be spared? He said, go slaughter a lamb and take that blood from the lamb and paint it on your doorpost. Paint it over your door threshold. And when the angel of death comes, he'll overlook your home. You'll be spared. You'll be saved. So the Israelites did that. God says in the Bible, he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. One more time, the scarlet thread of redemption. Thousands and thousands of years of temple worship and uh, tabernacle worship, they sacrificed animal after animal for the cleansing and remission of sins. It was their sin sacrifice. They'd bring a, a, a spotless lamb and they'd bring uh, different kinds of animals there and sacrifice them. They might be forgiven of their sins. God's perfect plan went all the way through John the Baptist. When John the Baptist, the scarlet thread of redemption, when God, John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ there at the river before he baptized, remember what he said? He says, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew Jesus Christ when he saw him. He understand who he was. God's perfect plan, the scarlet thread of redemption, happened on a hill called Calvary. God sent his son for you and I that he might die upon that cross, the brutal death that you and I would have that life. This scarlet thread of, of redemption that sees its way all the way through the Old Testament points to that cross and Jesus Christ died upon it. When Jesus Christ gave up his spirit and said, it is finished, the scarlet thread of redemption was complete. You know, this triumphant entry was thousands of years in the making, all the way through history, 4,165 years. The triumphant entry was coming. Why did God do this? Why did God have that scarlet thread of redemption that they call it today? Why did God want us to see the coming of the King and the redemption of our sins through Jesus Christ? Why? So we wouldn't miss the Messiah. So we'd understand truly who Jesus is. A lot of people tell me in their life that, you know, it's hard for me to read the Bible, the Old Testament sometimes. They just don't understand it. And it is hard. They say the same thing about Revelation. But I want you to think about this. We're missing out on our faith. We're missing out on the Word of God if we don't understand the Old Testament. And then especially if we don't understand that Jesus Christ is coming again and read about it. And it's tough to understand. Buy yourself a commentary. Let some of these great theologians kind of help us understand it. I need to. When I first time I read the Revelation, I didn't understand half of it. But I began studying. The more I understood it, I began understanding what he's talking about there. Listen very carefully. Because the Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ, one or two things happen as we read that Old Testament and come to that cross. We're either going to let God complete our faith. I understand my faith. The Jews understood their faith at that point. But you know what happens? When we see that cross and when we accept Jesus Christ, it completes our faith. We are complete in Christ. We have the whole big picture. We have the rest of the story that God has for us in our relationship with him. When we miss Jesus Christ, though, listen very carefully, like too many of the Jews, the majority of the Jews missed it. So you have this beautiful story unfolding, God pointing towards his son, the Messiah coming. You have this beautiful scarlet thread of redemption through the whole Bible, and you see these things, and how God is preparing us, how God is showing us, how God is telling us that there is no more remission of sin without the shedding of blood. He's telling us that. And there's only one person's blood that would ever do to give us the remission of sins, and it was son, Jesus Christ. No animal will do. No other human being could do. Only the Son of God remitting his son, his, 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 you know, shedding his blood for you and I that we might have that remission of sins. Why didn't they recognize the Messiah that day? Let me tell you, there's two other things going on that day that I want you to hear about. First of all, it was the Passover too. Not only did we have this history of the Old Testament and that scarlet thread of redemption, but it was also Passover time. What was Passover? Passover was a celebration of God sparing and delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. It was nothing short of a miracle. And so they made a whole celebration as they should for that event, that God saved the Israelites. You know, they say that there's probably two to three million people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus Christ entering in there. This whole Passover reminded the Israelites of their redemption and their salvation. But you know what else it did? It kind of fired up their thinking about the Messiah. They came there. You know, every year they're talking about it, thinking about when's the Messiah coming, when's the Messiah coming. Oh, did you hear about this guy named Jesus? They're saying he might be the Messiah. Really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, he's performing all kinds of miracles. That was the third thing that was going on there. 
the fact that Jesus Christ had performed some spectacular miracles. People couldn't believe it. The bottom line to all those miracles, did you hear that he raised Lazarus from the dead? Are you kidding me? He must be the Messiah. There was a frenzy going on in Israel. There was an incredible understanding of, hey, maybe the Messiah is coming this year at Passover. Maybe he's coming because we know he's supposed to be crowned here in Jerusalem. Oh, I hope he's coming. I hope he's coming. Hey, this guy named Jesus is coming to town Sunday. Let's go out and meet him. Let's go out and see him. That was what was happening in that triumphant entry. But was, how was it that they didn't receive him, but they rejected him? They saw him for just a few minutes, kind of a passing thing. Hey, the president's coming to town. Hey, let's go wave at him. It doesn't really change our lives just to wave at him. It doesn't really change our lives to get out there and put some branches in the road and throw down our clothes. They did that, and that was nice and honoring. But they should know. You know what's so sad about that day? That most of them left that day, talked about it maybe over dinner, and forgot about it. They forgot about it until Friday. Do you know, they didn't really go home and ponder the thought. They didn't really go home and open up God's Word and say, hey, let's really study this. Could this be the Messiah? What does it say here? What are all the things about the Messiah that we've missed? What are all the things that I know about the Messiah? That I might know who Jesus Christ is. They missed it. They missed it. Even with all that great expectation. The entire Bible points to Jesus Christ. It does. How can you miss Jesus Christ and have a Bible in your hand? You can't miss him. We're going to talk about some other ways that we miss him that we shouldn't. But how is it that the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ? And for whatever reason, we just don't get the whole big picture. We don't receive the whole plan that God has for our lives. We don't feel blessed the way we need to. We're not living in hope but in hopelessness. How is it? The passages we read this morning, there's four great truths I want to share this morning. And they come from some pretty profound thoughts that Jesus Christ made the comments or were said about him as he entered in. In verse 32, we just read a few minutes ago, Jesus Christ asked a couple of apostles to go and seek a donkey, a colt that says it in this version. I love what 32 says. So those who went, I'm sorry, for, for those who were sent, went. Don't you love that? Even rhymes. For those that were sent, went. I love that. What are we talking about here? Obedience. Can you imagine for just a moment, these apostles, and they're getting ready. They have a wrong conception too at this point about Jesus Christ. Not totally, but just like everybody else. They're thinking he's going to be a king. They're thinking he's going to get rid of the Romans. They're thinking he's going to be exalted here on this earth. They had missed it kind of that he wasn't, his kingdom wasn't this earth. They got it eventually. But we're talking about obedience. These guys are already planning. They've already talked to Jesus Christ about who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. You know, I want to be the secretary of state. No, I want to be the speaker of the house. I want to be vice president. All these different things they wanted to have. They were already making plans. And so as they were entering into Jerusalem, they're thinking, all right, it's just about time here. It's going to happen. Jesus says, hey, go get a donkey, will you? What? I'm going to be the secretary of state. I don't get donkeys. They could have had all kinds of thoughts in their mind, but you know what? Those that were sent went. They were obedient. Why? Because it was Jesus Christ talking to them. If I were to ask you this morning, how many years have you lived? I think most of us would tell us your age. I've lived 20 years or 50 years or 80 years, whatever it might be. You would tell me how many years 
your heart has been pounding. I want to ask you this morning a deeper question. How long have you really lived? How long have you really lived? Life is not measured in minutes. It's measured by moments. Don't miss that thought. You know, a lot of times when you hear somebody's passed away, one of our first questions, well, how old were they? You know, and that's important. But uh, a lot of times we figure, man, if they lived to be 80 or 90, that was a great life. If they died at 30 or 40, man, that was a short life. We kind of feel bad that the life wasn't as good as the one that was 80 or 90 years old. Jesus Christ was only 33 years old when he died. There's a lot of living to be done in a short period of time if we really, really live life. What do we miss when we're not obedient? You ever thought about that? You know, I should th- I should be doing this or I should be doing that. or You know, I, I think God's kind of telling me to do this. I just don't know if I have time and all the things. What do we miss when we're not obedient? I can tell you what you miss. You miss God. Why does God want us obedient? Because he wants to show us things we've never seen before. He wants to do things with us that we've never done before. He wants to give us a life experience that will excel in anything that the world could ever even begin to offer. Those apostles, I'm sure, talked for years about the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem. I want you to notice something else here. It says there, back to verse 32, so those that were sent went, I love that, their way and found. Don't you love that? Those that were sent went and found. They found what they're looking for, but also, you know what? When we walk in obedience, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find Jesus Christ. We're going to find life. I love the two scriptures, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you shall be, what? Filled. You should be filled up. What does that mean? It means when I, when I seek God first, I seek his righteousness, you know what my life's going to be? Complete. It's not going to be lack of things. It's not going to be void of all the things that I think are important. God's going to give me the best, that money, things that money can't buy, the things that only God can give when I walk in obedience. But also my experiences in life are going to be eternally based. They can be based on things that truly matter. Not doing something just for fun. That's not wrong. Nothing wrong with having fun. But I want to live my life in such a way as I make a difference. But also, I want to find the things that God put me here for. I want to understand the things that God put me here for. How about Matthew 5 and 6, 5 verse 6? He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. God is telling us here when we seek Him first, when we're hungry and thirsting for Him, you know what we're going to do? We're going to find. We're going to find. Those that were sent went, and they found. The next thing we read about here is blessed is the king. Verse 38 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That verse is a direct quote out of Psalms 118, verse 26. Isn't it amazing how God's word is so interrelated, how so it's interwoven, how God's word is so perfect? Here it is, these people in the streets of Jerusalem some thousand years later are quoting scripture from Psalms 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Does this sound familiar? Well, how about when the angels showed up over Bethlehem, proclaimed this guy as glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You know, it's interesting here, the parallel of these verses. You know what's happening here? God wants us to be obedient, but he also wants us to understand praise. God in these verses is teaching his people how to praise God. 
Praise Him. You know, I've, I've held a number of meetings over the years where I've wanted to have a concert of prayer. You say, well, Pastor, what's a concert of prayer? It's when we get serious about talking to God, but we kind of break up our prayer time into specific forms of action. There's a time of praise when we praise God. There's a time of thanksgiving when we thank God for who He is. There's a time of confession, confessing the things in my life or the life of our nation or our church here that are wrong. There's a time of supplication, which is list-making. It's asking God for things. There's all kinds of things we can pray about. Those probably being the four major ones. Praising God, thanking God, confessing to God, and making lists and supplications to God. You know, I've done this over the years. I've come to realize, and a lot of times I'll have a group of ten people here, and I'll give a couple of people to talk on and pray about praising him, a couple about confessing, a couple about thanking When we come to the praising part, I'm noticing that most of us have a hard time with that part of the prayer life, praising God. What's he doing right here in these verses? He's saying, praise be to God. He's saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. That's praising God. A lot of times when we think about praising God, we thank him. Thank you, God, for this and that. And, and that's great. That is praising God. Or maybe we're asking for things. God, I just love you so much for this. Praising God is recognizing and exalting his worthiness, his character, his traits, okay? God is a great creator. He's a great provider. He's a great physician. He's a great uh, all-knowing thing. He's a great I am. All the things that we understand about God's name, that's praising God, praising him for who he is. My family and I have a little tradition we do at birthday time. Have a nice little dinner, and at the end of dinner, we recognize the person that we're honoring that day on their birthday. We take time to go around the table and talk about that person and say all the many things we love about them, praising them, praising that person for who they are. You know what God is looking for, and that's why I think this is so important, that, that blessed be the name of the Lord. It's so important that you and I understand that we need to praise God for who he is. We can't do that until we come to know him in an intimate way and realize who he is. Understand that he's a great God in heaven. The next thing comes out of verse 40, the next great truth. It says the stones will cry out. Verse 40 says this, but he answered and said to them, they're telling them, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they should keep quiet, even the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus Christ right here was asserting his deity. We need to be obedient. We need to praise God, but we also understand, understand who God is. God is God. We're not. God is a great creator. We're not. God, Jesus Christ was asserting who God was. Even God, I, and he's saying, I, I'm telling you right now, if they stop praising me, those stones will begin praising me. He was asserting his deity. He didn't usually do that. But now was a time for people to come to know. They didn't get it indirectly. They didn't get it through God's word. So he was telling them personally, I am God. You stop praising me, even these stones will begin praising me. Don't miss that thought. Too many times we minimize God. Our God is too small. We live in defeat. We live in a desperation or depression because why? Because our God's too small. We don't realize who God is. God is a great, mighty God. He's God. Turn with me real quick, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Since the very beginning, God has made sure that we know He's God. How has He done that? Through creation. You can't look at His creation. You can't look at His handiwork and not realize that God's a God in heaven. That loves us. I want you to turn here so you can kind of maybe mark this and remember this. Romans 1. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible, talking about God, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. Because all they knew, all, because all they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We miss God. We don't realize who He is. We can't realize who God is without His Holy Word, understanding it. It's reading the Old Testament. It's seeing that scarlet thread of redemption. It's seeing from the very beginning God had a plan. That Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit were here from the very beginning. You read about Jesus Christ and read about the Holy Spirit in the very beginning. You know, when God says many things, He says, we. He's talking about the triune God. The three parts. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something here too. Jesus Christ said the stones would immediately cry out. Think about this for just a second. In Matthew 27, verse 51, it says this. This is after Jesus Christ died and gave up his spirit. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The stones spoke out. The final great truth here. We need to be obedient. We need to praise the Lord. We need to understand who God is. That God is a God that can make the stones cry out. And finally, we need to see that, this, he, that Jesus Christ saw the city and he wept. So that in verse 41. Uh, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus Christ wasn't weeping because he was going to face the cross that week. He was weeping for that city. He loved that city. He loved the streets. He loved every stone in that city. Loved every man, every woman, every child in that city. Jesus Christ loved them. He loves you and I. Jesus Christ had an incredibly tender spirit. He cried in the Bible we have recorded three times. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. He cried here in Jerusalem. Then he cried tears of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there's no one in the Bible you'll read that Jesus Christ laughed. I'm sure he did, but it's not recorded. But there's three times you see Jesus Christ's tender heart, his spirit for you and I, his tenderness for you and I. You know, the Israelites that week, for the most part, missed the visitation of God. God was in their city. God was on their streets. God was there in Jerusalem. It's a time of Passover all times, but they missed him. I want you to hear this. Then in 70 A.D., just a few years after this time, the Romans laid siege for 139 days on Jerusalem. More than 600,000 Jews were killed. 600,000 Jews were killed by the Romans. Thousands were taken into captivity. The entire city and the temple were all destroyed. Why? The Bible told us. It was destroyed because he, Jesus Christ, came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jerusalem missed the visitation of God. They missed Jesus Christ. You know, when we ponder and think about the triumphant entry, we need to realize that this triumphant entry, so-called triumphant entry, ended on that next Friday at the cross. Christ's true triumphant entry is coming again. His second coming. He's coming back. The first time he came on a donkey, the second time he's coming on a horse, a white stallion. The Bible says this, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name called the Word of God. Jesus Christ is coming again. Every knee will bow. 
Every mouth will confess. You know, I'm here to tell you on the authority of the Holy Scripture, but also on my personal experience, that God wants to make a triumphant entry into your life. God wants to do something spectacular in your life. The question for you and I, how are you going to respond? The triumphant entry this morning might be for some of us, you know, I have Jesus Christ, but, you know, I realize the big picture today. There's so much more I want to know and understand that I might grow in my intimacy with Christ. I don't want to be a marginal, sit on the sidelines of Jesus Christ. I want to get in the game. I want to be where God wants me to be. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ. You've heard about it. You're not here by accident this morning. I'm here to tell you. There's a room full of believers here that pray for you every day when we come in here. I'm praying that there's somebody in this room that's lost that they get saved today. I'm praying this might be the day when somebody meets Jesus Christ. You and I have an incredible story to tell. I mean, it's an incredible story. I'm excited about the story. It changed my life. It changed your life. I'm excited because I've seen the way it's changed some of your lives. I'm excited about what Jesus Christ wants to do.